Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Coming to you uh, one of two more times from Arlington, Texas. Today's show and Monday's show will be back here, and then the show will forever and ever and ever be coming to you from Hot Springs Village, Arkansas. Uh, so this is uh, kind of a historic moment, I guess. This is the last listener call show, and Monday will be the last Monday write-in show out of Arlington. Of course, the rest of this week's show did come to you from Hot Springs. I'm back here now for the final move. That'll be Tuesday. Uh, quick announcement on Tuesday. I will be re-airing an interview that I gave to Rational Public Radio. And Wednesday next week, there probably won't be a show. Maybe I'll do a, a rebroadcast of something from the past for you or just recommend something you go look listen to uh, from the past. It's just... Um, you know, after that move, we're probably going to need to take, give me a day, give me a day off after my move. And then I'll be back Thursday and Friday next week. And we'll, on Thursday next week, we'll, uh, we'll go back into the money saving tips because that's really turned into a great series. And I have a ton of stuff left for you guys there. Today's show, of course, is a listener call show. That means you pick up your phone, you dial some numbers. Those are 866-65-THINK. Again, if you remember, you need to call if you want to be on a show like this, 866-65-THINK. Leave your message in two minutes or less. Be concise, be clear, be to the point. We'll try to get you on the air. And I am excited to take your calls today and do what I can to answer your questions, do my best anyway. Uh, before we do that, though, let's take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today is BulkAmmo.com. You know, I talk about silver and gold a lot around here, and there's a reason. They should be part of what you store. They should be part of your investment strategy. They should be part of everything that you do to ensure your liberty. And I also talk about the Second Amendment and protecting your liberty that way. And I think that's very important that we are all armed and that we are prepared to defend ourselves if the situation arises. And I think it's more than just being prepared to defend ourselves. I think it's exercising our right. But there's another precious metal you need to add to your stores, and that's copper-jacketed lead, also known as ammunition, for those guns. Otherwise, your guns are nothing but an overpriced club. And when it comes to great price, fast shipping, and great selection, the best place I know to stock up on your ammo seriously is BulkAmmo.com. Next up today, I want to tell you a little bit about MERS, MERS Radio. It's M-U-R-S, and uh, the site is M-U-R-S-Radio.com. What is MERS Radio? MERS is an unlicensed radio frequency spectrum, and that means that anybody can use it. You don't need a license to do that. And uh, you can get these radios, and that gives you secondary communication. Okay, that's, that's one part of the, the equation. The other part is there are these motion detectors that can work with it. that will transmit to your handheld radios or your base station things like Alert, alert Sector 1 or Alert Sector 2, Alert Sector 3. So you can put these uh, motion detectors at strategic points around your property, and now you've combined secondary communications and security into one system. I think that's really cool. And uh, MERSradio.com, a Rob over there, absolutely knows his equipment cold. He only carries a small selection. And if there's anything you're trying to do, give him a call. He'll tell you, yes, you can, and here's what you need, or no, that won't work. You won't have to deal with any kind of, like, uh, it should work, because Rob absolutely knows his stuff cold, 
and he really cares about taking care of his customers. That's why we're glad to have him as a sponsor here uh, at the Survival Podcast. Uh, next up today, I'm going to run a discount for the Member Support Brigade uh, over the weekend. I'm going to only announce it on the show. I might tweet it and Facebook it, but it won't be in the show notes. I won't do it on the forum. I won't email it out or anything like that. The discount is 20% off any membership you want to buy. So if it's a one-year membership or a six-month membership or whatever, it's up to you how much you want to save. You get 20% off. The discount code is, here it is, big surprise, 20. The word 20, T-W-E-N-T-Y. So again, that'll get you 20% off any membership. It's good through Sunday evening, and only people listening to the show or following Twitter or Facebook will have access to that discount. Doing it kind of, put a little bit extra cash into things for the move, the last little bit of the move here. And uh, if you want to use that code and you want to uh, join by mail, uh, you can just write 20 on the uh, form and you can mail that in. And as long as it's postmarked, I'll say by Monday, uh, the, uh, what is that, Monday the... Monday the 16th, I'll give you two. If you're doing it by mail, I will accept your discount code. All right, so let's go ahead and get into uh, taking your calls. Again, if you'd like to be on a show like this, the number you call is 866-65-THINK. Again, 866-65-THINK. Hey, Jack, this is Craig in Northeast Washington, or Skeet's Off-Road on the forums. Hey, just another reason to prep. We just come home this morning from being gone for three days. Of course, it is Easter today. Come home to find out that our refrigerator and freezer had died, lost all our food, our milk, couldn't make baby bottles, nothing normally. However, we had all our preps. We just broke into some powdered milk, got the baby going. We had uh, our food you know, stored away on our Harvest 72 shelf, and it was uh, just no, no, no big deal. We were uh, 65 miles from the closest store that would be open, so it's just business as usual. Keep up the good work. Uh, and enjoy Arkansas. Thanks. Well, definitely thanks for calling in with that. It's amazing how a lot of times we don't think we're going to need to have you know a food storage program. And it's amazing how many times it's not really a life and death thing, but it's like a very much a convenience or an economic savings thing or something like that. In this case, it's mainly a convenience thing. I mean, sure, no one was going to die. The baby might have had to go hungry a little bit, and you would have had to drive 65 miles to get your food. But, you know, you could have done it if you had to. Of course, it's a 130-mile round trip. That would have took about four hours. Instead, you just broke into your preps. I wonder how your uh, freezer died. Was it like a power outage thing that clipped the breaker? If that was the case, then uh, that really sucks. But at least your refrigerator is so good. If it, if it was the other way around, the thing just died, which is what it sounds like. That uh, that's, uh, that's kind of a double whammy. Not only did you lose all the food that was in it, but uh, you lost uh, the refrigerator and freezer, you have to replace it. I remember one time we were out of town, and I had the freezer full of wild hog and venison. And uh, the breaker tripped. And we weren't paying anybody to go by the house and check on things or anything like that. And the freezer was still good. But because the breaker tripped, the uh, the stuff just ran became rancid in there uh, over about a week period while we were gone. And it was kind of devastating to me, not just to lose the food, period, but to lose that particular stuff that we had that I, you know, kind of hunting things that had just ended and we were stocked up. But having other stores of food definitely helps. So that's a great call. I don't really need to say much more about it, but thanks for sharing that. And I think that stories like this, folks, are a great way to share prepping with others. It's not always about the end of the world. Sometimes it's just about having a modicum of convenience in the middle of something that's kind of really a mess. Let's go ahead and take another call. Hey, Jack. Jason from PA here. Just wanted to share that I did something I've never done before. 
um, decided uh, the other day, just looking at all these dandelions my kids were picking, I said, why don't I rip some of these nice, big, fresh dandelions up? Brought a whole bag full of them into the kitchen, tore off the leaves, washed them, rinsed them, and uh, cooked them in a pan with a little salt, butter, and garlic, and olive oil, and, well, they came out quite good. Um, so, just want to say, I took your advice and tried something new. Well, great. I mean, dandelions are a pretty nutritious thing, and it's great to try them when you don't need to eat them and to start learning about them. Now, what you find a lot of times if you go ahead and try to eat dandelions raw, it's not that it'll hurt you anyway, but you won't like them because they'll be extremely bitter, but cooking them definitely pulls the bitterness down. A way to pull the bitterness down even more than what you did, uh, and you can do it real quick and still get a pretty big drop in bitterness, is get some boiling water, drop them in there, boil them for maybe a, even a minute, strain that water off, and then go to your saute, which I like better than the just steamed. Uh, that'll make a lot of the uh, that white kind of sappy stuff that has most of that bitterness in it come out for you. Another thing you can do if you want to be able to eat your dandelions mixed into salads and things like that, don't try to eat a dandelion salad. Eat a salad with dandelion in it. That you know. So what I'm saying is other greens, maybe some traditional lettuce. Use it to fill the salad out, add some nutrition, and uh, pick your dandelion leaves for raw eating when they're smallest in areas that are shaded or create a shaded area with some shade netting where dandelions are growing. Uh, you can even blanch them by taking, let's say, uh, an empty flower pot, the kind that maybe uh, that are about four to six inches, the, the larger plants come in. That's a couple holes so some sunlight can get in. Put them completely over a dandelion plant with young leaves. Leave them there for three or four days. When you pull it up, it'll be very faded out, kind of a white color, kind of like a celery color, the inner celery stalk color. And those leaves that are that color uh, have been deprived of chlorophyll. They haven't been making as much energy so the plant will, will have to allow some of that sap to, to, to fall out of them. And that'll actually, you know, just like blanching many vegetables does, makes it a little bit more tender and a little less bitter. So there's some different things you can do with dandelions, but great for trying something new. Folks, and I want to hear about this. If you've gone out and tried some wild edibles and how you did it and how it worked out for you, including I did it and I didn't like it. Here's what I did. Maybe I can tell you what to do differently next time to make them taste better. And make sure you, when you're doing this, I mean, dandelions are a pretty safe one, and that's why it's a great place to start. Uh, but if you're eating anything you you know can't, you know, make sure it's a positive idea, I guess is what I'm getting at. And uh, be careful out there because some of the things we can eat that are good for us can also give us problems if we don't handle it properly. Stinging nettles is a perfect example. Once cooked, they're, you, know, you can eat them, you can do whatever you want, and they're not going to give you the welt and the rash and the things like that. Handling them barehanded before you do that, and you're going to end up itchy and sore and unhappy. So be careful when you're out there trying new things, but uh, definitely don't let it stop you from going to do it. Uh, a lot of people that came before us that had a lot less information and technology than us did it for a living, so we can certainly learn how to do it. It's something to supplement our living. Let's go ahead and take another call. Hi, Jack. It's Steve in Massachusetts. Uh, I am planning on starting a garden in a woodsy suburb of Boston that I moved to, a garden and food forest. And all of my neighbors say that I'm, that I shouldn't do this. Uh, that, uh, but the, because of the deer. Because the deer will certainly eat, uh, all of the garden vegetables and all of the bushes and young trees in the food forest. And I'm wondering, what's your response to that? Uh, do it anyway and overplant uh, to take to take into account uh, that which will be killed by the deer. Um, use uh, fencing, but fencing wouldn't work for the food forest or for gorilla, gorilla gardening. Thanks, Jack. Appreciate your advice. 
I don't know. Let me ask you, how many people do you think told me that Survival Podcast wasn't a good idea and that nobody would listen? <laughs> really? Uh, or when I said, you know what, this is going to be, you know, once it started to take off a little bit, I told family and friends, hey, this is going to be my full-time business soon. I mean, how many people you told me, how many think you people told me that wasn't going to work? Uh, and how many instances in my life and in your life has somebody told us not to do something because they thought it couldn't be done, and then you or I or somebody else went out and did it and proved that it could be done? Um, so it's not that there's probably not a deer problem in your area. There probably is, but it makes me think of the monkey story with you know the monkey climbing up the pole, and they spray him with the water hose, and they have four monkeys. They do this too, and then they take one monkey out and they put a, a, another monkey in, and the three that are left that have been sprayed hold the first one down, and they won't let him go up the pole, and eventually he gives up. And they keep doing it until there's like four monkeys in the room and none of them have ever been sprayed with water. None of them have any idea, but none of them will climb up the pole to get to bananas because everybody else says not to. I mean, there's so much of that in life. It just, it almost pisses me off to think that people would tell you, oh, don't even do it. Don't even do it. Uh, because, well, they're freaking idiots. They have no idea what you know and what you're capable. What they're saying is, didn't work for me, so it's not going to work for you. Um, that's the entire history of things not getting done and advances not being made. So, first of all, with your, your direct garden, you can put fencing in. So there's your solution. So you already have half your solution. Now we look at food forest. Well, you can't fence the food forest in, but if you have land that maybe, and I, I guess that's because you have land that you can grow a food forest on, but it's, um, it's too big or you can't afford the fencing or what have you, especially fencing high enough to do the job around the entire piece of land, which I can understand, well, fence the trees. Get yourself uh, you know, um, some six-foot uh, roll fencing, and when you plant your trees, put it in a circle around your tree that's maybe uh, you know, a two-foot diameter circle to protect your tree, Trim it, grow it high and tall so that it grows up with some natural pruning a little higher than you normally would. Get your canopy up over five feet and all your problems of your deer nibbling everything off as it's starting go away. Let me ask you another question. How do you think that forests grow with all those deer out there? See, the deer become part of the forest. It's it, it, The problem that we get into when we have problems with any pest, whether it's deer or insects, is when we put something so different and so tasty for them in great big giant clumps all in one place and we ring the dinner bell. So with your food forest, if you spread it out, plant trees that are both fruit and nut trees along with nitrogen-fixing trees and other trees for support, uh, and not everything being you know one species, you should probably be able to do this. Gorilla gardening will probably work remarkably well. Contrary to popular belief, deer don't eat every single thing that's out there, especially if it's spread out. When you gorilla garden, you're going to have some losses because you're, you don't have full control. Sometimes people will find your stuff and pick it. Sometimes a jerk will walk through the woods on public land, find your stuff, and kick it just because it amuses him because he's a jerk. Sometimes an animal will eat it. But the beauty of gorilla gardening is it's all extra. So I would try it. I would do it. And use some deer repellents. I mean, there are some decent deer repellents out there. And if it's your land, consider training a dog. You know, a, a dog that has a good uh, protectionist instinct, especially if you want to do some livestock, and a good homing instinct that's not known for wandering, that once trade will kind of stick around, is a great Pyrenees. One of the best dogs in the world for that. So there's always something that can be done, and there's always going to be people that tell you you can't do it. Trust me, there's people right now that live on the mountain with me in Arkansas that when I explain what I'm going to do to terraform that land, say, oh, it won't work. Well, that's because you don't know what I do. You don't know what I know. And, you know, even if I didn't know that, what I do know is there's always a way. 
So you may fail a few times, and the problem is that most people in most walks of life are afraid to freaking fail. If you're afraid to fail, get out of my way, because I'm not. That's how I've always felt. That's how I think everybody that listens to this show should feel. It's okay to fail. Now, don't risk $25,000 of your life savings on something that's likely to fail. Do things in small steps, prove it out, and then scale it up. But damn it, if you're not willing to fail, you're not going anywhere. You might as well just work 9 to 5 and stay in the suburbs and never go. I mean, really. And I'm not just I'm not picking on the caller here. I'm saying in general. And that's you just understand. You have to understand that you know part of what makes the people around you seem crazy isn't just because they don't prepare and stuff like that. It's because of that attitude. And if you're listening to the show, you want something more in your life, and most people actually don't want something more in their life. They'd like to be given more, but they don't want to go out and get it. And that's why they always make excuses. So there's my advice on that one. Hope it helps, and hope it's a broad, you know, kind of brought it out to a broader, uh, more mass appealing thing there. With because it's a great philosophy to have. That when somebody tells you something can't be done, tell them that well, you're obviously afraid to fail. Get the hell out of my way because I'm not. I, I really think that people that do that go further in life, professionally, uh, you know, family wise, everywhere. And uh, there's just too many people that have taken the approach of the monkeys of hold everybody else down, and you don't even know why. Let's go ahead and take another call. Hey, Jack, this is Scott from North Florida. My question is about uh, using a camper as a bug-out location and running a generator uh, to power it in the event of a, a power outage. Um, my camper's got an air conditioner, but it's uh, like a 30-watt or a, a 30-amp service that it requires. Uh, how do I hook that up to my generator? My generator has uh, two 110 uh, plug-ins. And then it's got one 240 volt plug in. So how how would I hook that up to, to run that generator? Thanks. Well, I got good news and bad news, and I thought I knew the answer, so I can I can uh, confer with Terry Cooper to confirm it. Uh, there are generators, and, and we have one that's a 30 amp 110 outlet. And uh, if you want to be able to run your full services with a 30 amp. Uh, uh, RV, including things like the air conditioner, uh, you, that's what you need. So your generator will not run your air conditioner on your RV. Caveat, it probably would. It, it probably would, but it'll also probably eventually burn your compressor up because of underdrawing on the, uh, on, on the circuit. Uh, basically, your generator can be used to, you can get a 110, uh, to 30 watt adapter and you can plug that in and you can run ev- just about everything your RV has uh, except the AC so you can run your 110 outlets and, and do anything that generator would do and uh, you obviously could run from your second outlet a pow- you know, an extension cord inside your RV and have additional 110 power in there and anything that was pulling you know, um, uh, 15 amps at 110 or less could be run on those outlets or anything in combination doing that also taking account the wattage of the generator so odds are the generator has plenty of wattage to do everything else even if you have plenty of wattage but you don't have the amperage and again, I, maybe somebody can tell me a different way to do this, but Terry Cooper, who's like the RV guy, uh, says I'm right about this. Uh, you, you just can't run the AC off that generator. You have two legs of 110, and they're 180 degrees out from each other in phase. You can't put them back together. If you do, you have to put them back together, jack the voltage up to 20, uh, 220 to 240 voltage. 
uh, which, of course, you don't want to push 220 voltage across a 110 circuit. So you're in kind of a catch-22 there. So here's your answer. If you want a generator that will run your AC in your RV, you need one with a 30-amp outlet, and if you don't have that, you can't do it. The other side of it, though, is you can run just about everything else in the RV other than the air conditioner. So there, there's where you're at. I'm sorry I can't give you a way to fix it, um, but that's just where it is. And you'll find that generators that will do this uh, that are specifically set up for RV usage uh, generally are going to cost more money. Um, and again, I, I want you to understand, just in case you try it and you're like, oh, it works, it will probably get the AC started, but you're looking at a very short-term thing before the AC itself fails and you have an expensive component to replace. Uh, and Terry says it will most likely be your compressor. So if you've ever had that question, you've ever wondered, uh, not just the guy that called in, but anybody that's looked at generator sets and RVs and wondered, how do we make these two things talk to each other? We've got to find two that are compatible. And uh, most people generally don't use a generator to run their air conditioner in an RV because it's an all-on proposition anyway, even if you have it set up to do it. Uh, because what you're trying to do then is, uh, is, uh, is run that generator full tilt and draw from it And you've got all the noise factor and everything else. So it, it can be done, and there are generators that will do it for you. It's just generally what's not done. What's generally done is the generator is used to provide 110 power for, for other stuff. You run your refrigerator on your propane, and you run your heater and your hot water on your propane uh, when you're not hooked up to a, a primary outlet. And uh, you also use the residual to keep your batteries topped off and fully charged. So that you can run all your DC components, which is going to be most of your lighting. And, if you, and maybe, you know, if you have a hardwired stereo system or things like that, that all generally runs off DC. So there you go. Sorry I can't lay hands on it and make a, a generator at 15 amps and give you 30, but it just won't work. You will find some stuff online of people trying to make adapters and put them back together. But I was pretty sure that was a bad idea, and Terry confirmed that as well. So let's go ahead and take another call. Hey Jack, Nathan Tompkins here. Hey, uh, I got a question. Uh, I'm getting a degree in college and I'm having to make up my decision on what I'm going to do. Um, I'm 37 years old. I've been in the military and I've got my own heating and air business. Um, <clears throat> I'm thinking about the military's paying my way through college, so I, it's pretty much a free ride. I'm just trying to figure out what I want to do to make you know my life better in the long run. Um, My question is, I'm, 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 I'm leaning toward computer information technology uh, with a minor in electronic uh, e-commerce. Uh, if you would, uh, give me your, uh, you know, if you was going to do that, uh, I don't, I'm not really sure what kind of jobs that I'd be looking for. I know they'll be in computers, but I'm not sure exactly, you know, what all I'll be able to do in computers. I kind of like uh, the plan that you have, you know, with, with your business uh, doing the survival podcast. It's pretty awesome. Um But, yeah, I just want to get your take on it, and uh, maybe if you have some ideas that I might not have thought of with it, uh, thanks, and have a wonderful day. Bye. Well, let me see what I can do for you there. On the uh, on the IT side of things, the information technology degree, um, you're a very marketable person, and there's tons of people out there that can do it, but there's only so many that can do it well, and the more experience you get, Uh, you know, the degree kind of gets you into an entry-level position, and uh, it's one of the fields where it's, you know, it's still relatively possible to find an entry-level position. You may have to relocate to do it, but the more experience you get, the more marketable you become, and the more training you get, the more marketable you become. So it's a solid career path, but it's generally a career path. Either eventually you go to kind of a consulting arrangement, 
You can make quite a bit of money, but your employment is unsteady. You go into kind of an individual business, kind of like you're doing now, and same thing. Or you stay on a straight career path. So if you want out of the system, it's not necessarily the best way to do that because all the things that you're going to learn how to do in a small office like you would do for yourself, you're not going to be, you know, if you're doing something else and you just wanted the skill set, you're going to set it up once it be done. Well, a lot less, even if it's being paid for by the military, a lot less expensive way uh, would be to phone somebody up and have them set your office up for you if you really wanted to set up high-end. And for a one-man show or two-man show, you, you don't even really need to know all this stuff. So unless you're going to go into the career field, I wouldn't do it. The e-commerce thing, um, I, I don't want to say anything too negative because you know I only interviewed a few people at Frank and Spirico that had degrees in e-commerce. But I have to tell you, I wasn't impressed with their knowledge of what I consider e-commerce. They knew how to do things like set up shopping carts and, and, and basically the mechanical aspect of e-commerce, how to set it up, um, and, and a little bit of marketing. But I felt like what they knew about marketing was very insufficient and that I could hire somebody that uh, had been trying to do things for themselves for a little while and wanted to kind of ramp up their skill set and knew how to use Facebook and Twitter and YouTube and, and, and was working with affiliate programs and pretty much self-taught, those people were generally better suited to work for me than an e-commerce degree-holding person. But larger companies that routinely take on clients that want like shopping carts set up and all and want basic programs implemented and all do hire people like that all the time. So it's it's not a bad idea. It's just that I honestly believe that I haven't yet seen a, a school or a college teaching anything relating to Internet marketing that really has the curriculum down to reality. Uh, I think they do a pretty good job of teaching marketing as a discipline, a general discipline uh, for people to run spreadsheets and do analysis and cost-benefit analysis and strategic marketing and things like that. But I, I don't think there's a college yet. And, I, and again, I've been out of the professional world there for two years. and haven't talked to anybody coming out of these programs today or anybody putting them together. And things may have changed, but my instinct is that it probably has not. Now, if you wanted your own independence and you have the money from the government, and you want to go into the kind of computer world thing, I would focus on things like design, uh, PHP, uh, programming, database management, and e-commerce. I think then you got something, right? Um, because at that point, you can go to work for a company, and you can build something on your own. And the more you work for somebody, the more skills and the more ideas and things you'll come up with. And eventually, if you want to create your own thing, you've got all the skill sets you need. And even if at some point, just due to your personal, emotional bandwidth and your physical bandwidth and how much time you can work a day, you outsource some, some work by knowing how it's supposed to be done, you're going to do a very efficient job even on your own personal outsourcing. So if you want independence a better path is to go into the things that you'll need to build an entire business online. If you want a career, information technology is going to do better for you, and throwing the e-commerce in sure can't hurt. But you have to ask yourself a question, how long do I want to work a job? And if you want that to be short, if you want that to be three or five, three to five years or less, 
once you're out of the military and out of, your, out of schooling, then you need to focus more on the things that empower you individually. Or if you're going to go the IT route, except that what you're going to be doing is becoming you know, kind of one man in a technology truck that goes around and helps small businesses. There's nothing wrong with that either. But it's very similar in its requirements of you to what you're doing now. Maybe the work's a little less dirty and sweaty, But it's still the same type of managing customer relationships like you do with heating and air, hunting for work like you do with heating and air, and honestly, a little tougher to find business because when your AC's out, uh, you, you, whoever gets there first, you'll usually take. Because if I have 15 people on the phones working for me and their producti productivity slows down and they want to leave because they're sweating, that's really bad for me as a business owner. Same as a homeowner. Man, I want my house cool. So, you, you, you know, with, with IT, a lot of your work is, is preventative maintenance uh, and enhancements and an improvement. And businesses tend to hold back on that unless they're cash rich, which a lot, a lot of them are right now. So it can be done. It can work. But there's kind of my analysis of that sector right now. And don't let what I said about e-commerce really put a damper on it for you. But make damn sure a school explains to you exactly what the skills are. Uh, that you'll have at the end of taking the, the, these, this course and see if it really makes sense to you, you know, logically. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack. My name's Chris. I'm from up here in North Carolina, and I'm just calling in with a comment about um, purchasing firearms. Um, I know I only have, I currently only have, I have three, um, but I just try to get to know them as best as I can. But uh, the main comment I was going to make was, If anyone is out there thinking about purchasing a pistol and they want one that's maybe souped up a little bit with some extras, don't buy the gun already per already with all the extras on there. I would recommend, and what I do myself is buy a base model, and then you add whatever you want onto it. So not only do you have the extra backup parts from your sort of stock basic gun, um, but you also learn how to take the gun apart, uh, do repairs on it. Of course, there are some things that you'll need a qualified gunsmith to do, but for the simple things, for example, um, you know, I recently bought a Springfield Armory 1911 A1, the mil-spec model, and I plan on putting in a new hammer, um, an adjustable trigger and things like that, but I'll also have the, the factory uh, trigger and hammer as backups in case something were to fail. And also, you know, I'll get to know the gun a little bit more, taking it apart and putting it together. Um, of course, I have experience with 1911. Some people may not want to do that themselves, but it was just a thought. Thanks for the show. Take care. Well, I really can't add a lot to that. I think your your assessment's pretty good. I do. Uh, the kind of things you're talking about make a lot of sense to me. I do want to put out one word of caution with with the guys. Just like women seem to uh, focus on accessories from clothing, we seem to focus on accessories with firearms and vehicles. And with vehicles, I think it's a little less detrimental, honestly, because I think there's a lot of things that people do to guns that aren't necessary. And, and the stuff he's talking about makes sense. Um, it does make a more reliable firearm in that instance. But there's a lot of things that people do to guns to make them better that I believe overall reduces their performance and makes them worse. It's, and it's just this need we have to have something our, that's our own and unique and custom. But if you think about it, if you look at the AR-15, it's a perfect example. There's plenty of cool ways to customize them. Plenty of those ways of customization actually improve the gun for specific purposes. But you take the you know AR off the rack the way that it is, 
and it performs very, very well, and it does exactly what it's designed to do. And there's nothing wrong with putting some optics on it or, you know, putting in a, a, a different spring set or something like that or a different trigger group or what have you. But let's remember that the gun was designed the way it is and is spec'd out for military use. And when something's spec'd for military use, it's function over form. You know, it's will it work and will it work consistently? And a lot of times I think sometimes we tinker with things too much and we're going to make it better and we don't quite end up with that. Uh, the beauty of the approach here is that if you do it yourself, you can put it back the way that it was. But there's uh, there's just a caution there. Not for this caller. I, everything he said makes sense to do to a stock 1911. And I do think you learn from it. And I do like the, the... I've never really thought about it, but you save all those parts when you do your own upgrades. You do have spare parts, and that's great. You definitely learn the weapon better. Uh, you're more self-sufficient with it. And there's a lot of things that we can do. Even some things that are generally thought of as things a gunsmith can do. Um, you can do it. The problem is that... Uh, I remember I had uh, two two types of shop I took in high school. One was metal shop and one was wood shop. And the metal shop teacher used to make fun of the wood shop teacher. He said, "Because what he did is easy." He said, "You know what? You know, if there's 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 this thing called wood dough, and if you make a, a mistake with wood, you can fix it with wood dough. With, uh, with with wood dough, you can't if you cut a piece of metal too short or put a hole in it or deform it the wrong way. There's no metal dough. You know, it, it doesn't come with an eraser." And that's why we have to do a better job when we're doing metal fabrication than what you guys do when you're making a lamp or a spice rack or something over there in wood shop. And that's the you know all, most of the parts on the, the the gun are metal. And if you mess something up, you know, with when you go to things like you know tooling and dyeing, if you're doing tapping or drilling or something like that, it's it's done, and you got to get another part. So. Um, there are some things that you might want to leave to the hands of a professional, but if you're willing to uh, to do the work, get the tools, a lot of that stuff really isn't that complicated. So, great call. Let's go ahead and take another one. Hi, Jack. It's Steve from southern Missouri. Uh, love the show. My question is, I want to raise chickens, but I have a little dog that keeps killing them. And uh, other than building Fort Knox around the place, wondering if you have any advice on... Uh, How to break a little Jack Russell that habit. I had heard you can tie a dead bird around their neck for a few days, but uh, wasn't sure about that. Any advice you'd give, uh, I'd appreciate it. Thanks. You only have two choices. You either have to train the dog, or actually you have three. Train the dog, lock up the dog, or lock up the chickens from the dog. I mean, those are the only three ways that you can possibly get this done. Uh, some people are going to think I'm a cruel bastard right now, but I'm going to tell you that what I, what this, this will work. Uh, it will take vigilance. It will take a few days, but once it's done, it will be done, and that dog will never touch a chicken again. And it's not really cruel. It's just some people think that these devices are cool. Those dog shot collars, they work. And uh, something like a Jack Russell, it's a high-energy dog, and that's what they do is they kill small things. If you had a great big happy dog like a great Pyrenees or a German Shepherd, uh, it's a lot easier to train them not to kill your chickens because they can be taught that those chickens are part of the, the family, the flock, the pack, and they're to be protected. The Jack Russell sees something to kill. So you have to make him think, if I go kill this thing, I'm going to get hurt. And even a, a decent-sized rooster uh, is no match and isn't going to protect his chickens from a Jack Russell when he goes out to kind of stand up to the Jack Russell. He's going to get torn apart. So what you do is you get yourself a shot collar with a remote control, and uh, you put your Jack Russell out in your yard, and you watch him. And every time he gets near the chickens, you say no, and you shock him. And if you'll do that for long enough, he'll stop messing with those chickens. He'll learn that that's not what he's supposed to do. And that's about the only way I can think of 
to solve this problem other than confining the dog or confining the chickens. And the problem you run into with confining the chickens is if they're completely confined, then they're going to get into a position where they completely obliterate the land where you're confining them. So another approach confining the chickens may be to use you know, Paul Wheaton's paddock approach, move your chickens around with movable fencing that's high enough to keep the dog out. But you're either going to have to separate the two, or you're going to have to break that dog. And the big issue you have is not only is he a dog that's predisposed to do this, he's a dog that's done it many times successfully now. So now he thinks it's cool. He's had the reward, he's done it, so he's going to have to get bit in a way. Um, now, maybe a guy like the Dog Whisperer, Caesar Malai, could come out there and do his ch thing with your dog and fix it. I don't know how to do that, and I don't think that most people can with this problem. So I'd go with a shot collar. And um, if you don't want to do that, then you're, you, you either have to confine the dog or you have to confine the chickens. And, and those, are, those are your two choices. All right, with that, uh, let's go ahead and take another one. Hey, Jack, this is Rational Husker from the forum. I'm calling in regards to a question you took on your last call-in show. A gentleman called in and had a pond near his garden and was wondering if there was some sort of cheap way to get that water from the pond to the garden. And uh, I was wondering why an old-fashioned windmill wouldn't work. I, I'd have to do a little bit of research on this myself, but it seems to me that you could get a, a windmill, and, and the size of the windmill would just need to be uh, adequate for the amount of water you needed to get out of there, which if you're just watering a garden, you wouldn't need any pressure at all. So it seems to me if you could rig up a windmill with the intake in the pond in the outlet near the garden, or maybe you could even place a cistern near the garden um, up, you know, uh, higher than the garden so that you could just get water from the pond to the cistern and then just let gravity take care of the rest from there. So maybe that won't work. Maybe the... the uh, the capacity of a pump driven by a windmill is not great enough, but I know certainly is enough to keep a, uh, a watering tank full for livestock, so I don't know why it wouldn't work for a garden. Uh, if you think that's worth putting on the air or talking about, uh, feel free. If it's not and you want to tear it apart on the air, that's great too. Thanks, Jack. Well, it's a good suggestion, and it probably would work. And the way you'd probably want to do it is set up a fairly large stock tank, say something, you know, freestanding, something in the neighborhood of about 500 gallons, uphill from the garden, and run with a float system so that the float system, when it goes below a certain level, will allow the windmill to run the pump, and when it's not, the windmill just runs, and uh, maybe you could even generate some electricity with it if you wanted to that way. But um, it, basically, you couldn't rely on the windmill to be active whenever you were going to be ready to water the garden. You would have to create some type of a stock tank arrangement, maybe a couple smaller stock tanks linked together, and put them at a position where gravity could do the work when you're ready to water. Uh, because you might go three or four days with no real wind, and then you might have three or four days of heavy wind, and that wind might come along with rain. You see what I mean? So it might not be one you even need to water, but it's a decent idea. I, I guess it would work. People have been doing it for a long time. I mean, uh, there's a, you know, a nation known for its windmills that probably wouldn't even exist without them, uh, because they use it to constantly pump the water out and keep it above the, the ocean. So, uh, it would work. It's, it's, it's pretty elaborate. I guess it depends on the size of your garden and the size of your operation and what kind of price you can get on maybe an old windmill that somebody's not using anymore. But the guy that called in about it or anybody with a similar problem can look into it. And if anybody's done it, 
Uh, if anybody has you know found like an old windmill that's that's out there that the farmers not using anymore or what have you because they've gone to automate you know more automated technologies and you've pulled this off in any way shape or form either for moving water around or for electrical generation let me know call back in send me an email I'd like to hear about it let's go ahead and take another call Jack this is Ryan from Washington once again and I'm calling to thank you again for the show and this is more about thank you for the show than anything else I do have a question I'll put it at the end but um, as you know, I'm a, I'm a teacher, and I've been kind of bringing some of the stuff that you talk about into the classroom, and I've got several students that are now listening to you very regularly, and they are extremely taken with your show, and they started talking to their parents with uh, about a lot of the stuff. So once again, thank you very much. Uh, you're, you're really starting to get out there and reach a, an even broader audience than, I originally, than you probably originally thought you would. And so, uh, on to my question. As an instructor, somebody that loves to teach and has his own business doing firearms instruction, what you've mentioned in the past that you want to do like little academies and schools for doing this type of stuff. And I was just wondering how you see that taking shape and, uh, if you think, if you've thought about doing that up in the Pacific Northwest. Anyway, uh, I will look forward to your comments and I hope you have a good day. Semper Fi. Well, first of all, thank you for letting me know about that and giving me a further update on it. And you're right, I had no idea. And if somebody would have said to me, you know, back when I started this and I was yelling at ass clowns in the car and, and all, that eventually there'd be school teachers sharing this with their kids, the kids would get into it, the kids would go home and tell their parents, and the parents would start listening and actually start to set up their house with some redundancy and resiliency. I would have thought they were crazy because I wouldn't have thought anybody like that would even really be ready to, to listen to what I had to say. So... Uh, thank you for that. It's quite humbling. On your question on the kind of academy thing or something like that, I don't know if academy is the word I would use. I want to do some events, and I want to kind of reach out, uh, maybe do a couple little ones in 2011, uh, second half of the year. I'll be moved. I'll have a vacation under my belt. I'll be able to do something locally in Arkansas. Uh, maybe Hot Springs would be a great area to do an event, especially after the summer when it's not so daggone hot. And, you know, Little Rock's pretty easy to fly into, and there's other places you can fly into and drive within a couple hours and get there. Um, or, you know, for people in the area, and generally regional events attract more people that are relatively close. And then we could squeeze one more in somewhere else. What I've decided I don't want to do, and it's not because I see anything wrong with this model. It's just because there's so many daggone people doing it. It's like, I don't want to do the whole thing where we take over a, you know, a public campground or a private campground and everybody sits in tents and swats flies and mosquitoes and works on primitive skills and does bow drill fires. Again, not because I don't like that. And I'll, I'm even planning on going to an event like that this year uh, and being there and being part of it. Um, but... You know, Ron Hood does that. Dave Canterbury does that. There's Rabbit Stick. There's, you know, there's, there's, there's 20 or 30 guys in that niche doing that type of event. And what I found is a lot of people have a hard time getting wives and kids to go to those events because a lot of times they don't want to sit out there and sweat. And if you don't have an RV and you're going to tent camp, and then somebody's going to have the audacity to do this event in June uh, in near a swamp where there's mosquitoes and it's humid and it's 90 degrees during the day. And it, you have a great time, but certain elements of the family don't want to go. So this is kind of what I was thinking. 
come up with a kind of a basic format and bring people in as speakers and trainers and teachers and do the more of a, a hotel seminar type of arrangement. Not necessarily even at a hotel, but a place with air conditioning and a place where people maybe can get their own room, either right where the vet is or a little bit away from it. And then things like firearms training we can definitely do. We would need a local range and we could set that up. And maybe not everybody that would come to the event would even want to go to that training. It might be something people could sign up for. It generally incurs a cost, so we could kind of do an RSVP thing for people to go do some shooting at a range at a specific time. And if there's like, you know, a public range of people can just go out and, and throw some lead down range instead of formal training, they can kind of set that up on their own. And I want these things to have some autonomy. So if you were interested in putting one together in your area, you could start coordinating with the, uh, the moderators on the forum for help, work with your regional board, set it up. Will I come? If in 2011, that far, the answer is probably no. In 2012, yes. What I'd like to be able to do by 2012 is set up about six regions in the United States. Um, that's, that's, you know, fewer than we have total on the board. So there'd be, have to be some overlap because I am only one man. And that would be one every other month, by the way, guys. That's a, that's a big travel commitment, but where I would go to every single event. And we would run these events, and, and they would probably not be spaced out perfectly throughout the year because, let's face it, uh, there's a part of the year where it's really freaking cold in, in the northern United States. And it's not even that nice in the southern United States. And even though we'd have kind of an indoor thing going on, I would want to bring outdoor components to it. Some of the things I've thought about, when I used to travel for Fluke Networks, for instance, we used to stay when we'd go to Washington and we'd stay up there for a week at corporate headquarters and be miserable. The one upside was there was a place called Spring Hill Suites that we used to rent rooms at. And it was like a little mini apartment complex. And they had grills outside and swimming pools and a big common area and people could get together after hours. And they had great conference rooms. So we might look at that, that chain or another uh, group like that to set things up like that where people can be outside and enjoy it but have their own little space and be able to go cool off. And not everybody has to go to every workshop or every speaker or what have you. And maybe even to fit a lot of things into a short period of time, maybe there's a few places where you're making a choice. Do I go here or there? Do I go listen to this or that? Or do I go back to the room and take a nap? And if people want to kind of break off at a period of time and go out and do something with the kids, you know, it's all kind of loose like that. Give people time to network. People can go out for dinner after hours. They can cook food. Uh, they can, you know, if they want to camp, try to do it somewhere near a campgrounds where they can have a, you know, pull an RV in and, and camp and try to do it more in a very family-friendly Uh, format and not that these other events aren't family friendly from a uh, content and, um, and, and and you know welcoming standpoint, but family friendly for the people that have family members that they want to bring along. They want to make this a vacation, maybe even part of a vacation. So we did a three day event. Maybe you could use that area as the jumping point and go somewhere else before and after. I think that that would get better participation. And, uh, you know, you kind of do it over like a long weekend format, a lot of people, instead of taking a vacation that would be local to the thing, would just turn up. Uh, so that's kind of how I want to do that. But any, I want you to realize this. Anybody, anywhere can set up an event and say it's for TSP personnel. It's just probably going to be 2012 before I'm willing to commit to being at a lot of locations throughout the year. There'll be more about that coming in the future. I want to do that so very much. Uh, let's go ahead and uh, take another call. Hey, Jack, this is Clark from Washington. I just wanted to uh, comment in on the uh, discussion of people running up their credit and, you know, not paying the bills when everything falls apart because, you know, screw them all. I just wanted to add in that 
Another reason to not do that, other than all the excellent advice you gave in your most recent listener call-in show, is the fact that it's not very honorable to frickin' not pay your bills. I mean, uh, maybe that's just me being a military guy with 10-plus years of service, that you should do the right thing all the time. Uh, but I'd like to put that out there and say, you know, if you incur a debt, you should pay it and not think that a system's going to fall apart and allow you to get away without paying for goods and services you acquired. So thank you. I love the podcast. Keep it up. Thanks. Bye. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I, I think I've used that word a lot when I've talked about this subject. And I want to I, I be clear on this. There are people that get into a point where they can't pay their bills, whether it's a mortgage or credit card or anything else, and eventually say, I can't do it. They give up and they go into kind of a bankruptcy mode, uh, either formally or informally. And um, if that's you and that happens, I understand, and you use the law and you do the best you can. And I, I don't give you ill will. What the caller's talking about, what I'm talking about, are people when you, you bring the subject up, especially when you're talking in a prepper-friendly environment or you're talking to people that are looking at the economy and expecting it to fail, and they say, the hell with it. Why should I worry about them? Those bastards are the ones that did this to this country, whatever. When you say, I will pay you for this later, and you take delivery of goods, and you then know that you may not pay, and you just basically look at it, I don't care if I pay you or not, it's theft. It's theft. If you write a bad check, uh, that's what you're at. You know, check fraud is really theft of the goods. I knew I gave you a bad check. Well, I basically gave you no consideration, and you gave me consideration. I've stolen from you. Honor, though, I think is a deeper subject, and, and I, I want people to understand this. If we ever get into one of those end-of-the-world scenarios that these people that just basically say, screw the creditors, are betting on, and that's the problem, they're betting on nothing but failure, you're going to need help. You're going to need other people to stand up with you. You're, going to need other, you're not going to do it alone. We're going to have to put things back together. It's going to be a very difficult time. It's not going to be. What was the, the show in uh, Colorado? I can't remember what it was called now, but uh, basically some nukes had gone off or something like that. They ended up Jericho, right? They canceled it. Uh, it was a really, I liked it. It was a good show. I was one of the people that when they wanted it brought back on Facebook that joined the fan page to see if they would and what have you. And, of course, it's still gone, uh, as far as I know, anyway, unless it's on some kind of secondary cable network. If it is, somebody let me know. I liked the show, but it wasn't realistic. You're not going to have everybody sitting around and still worrying about who they're dating tomorrow night and listening to rock music on their iPods and what have you uh, when something that wrong goes wrong. And maybe, maybe if the series was allowed to continue, we would have gotten there because it did look like the, the place was spiraling uh, from rel relative order to disorder, which might be actually a very accurate picture. Um, but you're going to have to have, if you've ever seen that show, that's the kind of thing that you're going to have to have is some kind of cohesion. Well, <laughs> your fellow people know honor when they see it and they know lack of honor when they see it. And the only people that generally want to be with dishonorable people are other dishonorable people. And if the shit's really hit the fan, that's not where you want to be. You want to be with people that have honor and have respect and have pride in who they are and what they're able to do. Again, this doesn't mean if you can't pay your bills, you don't have honor. This means if you spend money and you know you won't be able to pay your bills and you don't care and you do it with the intent to profit by keeping your stuff and telling everybody else to go screw... Um, and when the shit hits the fan, you'll just get away with it. You've got an honor issue that you need to address now. Because that's a big part of what's wrong with America is how much we've lost respect for the principle of honor. And everybody that looks at this, well, our kids don't have that. Well, why don't they have it? 
Because we haven't taught them that there's value in it. Don't blame the kid. Blame the parent and blame the society that's allowed that decay. And then realize that we are the people and we are the society. And we have an ability to do something about it and reverse course on it and make it mean something again. Uh, just kind of expanding on that idea for you there a little bit. But I completely agree with you in the way that you're taking your, your, your view of that. Thanks for that call. Let's take one more. Hi, Jack. This is James in West Palm Beach, Florida. Two questions. Number one, are you aware of any gardening techniques to be able to go down in zones rather than up? I know you've talked a number of times about some of the gardening techniques that you can use to plant your trees or your vegetables and extend a growing season to go from less cold to more warmth. But what about if I want to grow trees and plants here in South Florida that would generally only work well up in the north? Question two is regarding growing trees from seeds. I recently heard one of your shows where the guest spoke about how important it was to grow trees and vegetables and things like that from seeds. I think the example was tomato plants. How is it possible to get fruit tree seeds and other seeds and just grow them in the ground so that I have the strongest possibility of their being successful? Are fruit trees different than a tomato plant in that regard? Thanks so much. Keep up the good work. Well, let's start off with your first question. The grass is always greener, right? I mean, there's people right now going, oh, man, stupid guy. He wants to grow a cherry tree. I wish I could grow a freaking grapefruit and an orange tree like he can. And he's got tropical, subtropical temperatures, and he's got all that rain. It's got easy soil to dig in. And, you know, he wants to grow an apple tree. And you're sitting there going, this guy up there in north, he wants to grow an apple. I wish I could grow an apple tree. There's oranges everywhere around here. Why do I need to grow another? And that's, I'm, I'm being funny, right? But, I mean, that's kind of like what happens. Like, wherever we are, we want to do what somebody else can do in another area. And we don't focus enough on what we can do. So, First, it's focus on all the wonderful things about living in South Florida. Lots of rainfall, great steady temperatures throughout the year, lots of stuff you can grow. You can grow a lot of passion flora, and all, you can grow olive trees. I mean, there's so many things you can grow that the rest of the country can't, citrus. Uh, so look at what you can do and, and focus on that first. To go down a zone with vegetables isn't that hard. Grow in your winter. You do have a winter in, in South Florida. So, you know, like lettuce and things like that, spinach, you can pull that off in the winter time. Uh, maybe even with a little bit of shade cloth if you have a specifically hot day to prevent bolting and things like that. With your trees, you're, I don't know of any way to fix it for you. Uh, most trees that are fruit trees have what's called, a, if they're deciduous specifically, have a, a, uh, a chilling requirement. And the problem isn't that if you plant the apple tree in South Florida, it won't grow. It'll probably grow fine. It just probably won't get into a rhythm and do any kind of real production for you because you're not going to meet your chilling requirements. So you got to look at how many, you know, how many hours do you have down there and what plants will fit that. And that's about all you can do with trees and bushes. But there's so much you can grow. I would say just don't focus on what you can't grow. I keep having people, you know, this one guy keeps asking, and he's got another guy that, that always comes up on Facebook and asks the same when I talk about permaculture. Well, what about the high desert alkali environments, only 90 days a year over freezing? And, well, there's only so much that's going to grow there. You got to go somewhere else, or you got to grow what grows there. And, you know, kind of that's what you have to do. Now, now, fruit trees from seeds, generally just about any fruit that's out there, the seed in it will germinate for you and it'll grow a tree. And there's not a lot of hybrids 
uh, out there in, in the fruit world, believe it or not. Most of it is, you know, it's, it's, it's been done in a way that is just like an evolutionary path. So most things out there, you take an apple and pull the seed out, plant it in the ground, and it'll grow. The only problem is you're going to end up growing, in general, a full-sized version of that tree, which could be a massive tree. There's only so much control that you can exert with using things like uh, cutting and pruning and stuff. So that's the big reason people do grafted rootstock. One is disease prevention, and the other is because with certain rootstocks, I can help control the size of the tree, dwarf and semi-dwarfing rootstock. So I can hold that apple tree in, let's say, uh, you know, a 10 to 12 foot range with semi-dwarfing rootstock. Maybe dwarfing rootstock, I can hold it down in an 8 foot range or 6 foot range, depending on the variety. So if you're going to do it from seed and you want to control the size, look at what the full size version of that tree is and go with smaller varieties. And how do you do it? You just plant them, you take care of them, you water them. Is there a benefit? There's a massive benefit. And, and there's a, a couple ways that that benefit is seen. Uh, number one, you never end up with circling and girdling root syndrome. The tree, uh, when you plant it in a container, eventually the roots reach the end, and they start going in circles, and it's really a pain in the ass. When you're planting trees from containers, you need to soak those trees in like a water basin for several hours. And then you need to go in and get all the dirt out and straighten those roots out. And the longer you soak it, the more flexible they'll become. And you need to try to straighten those out as much as possible so they'll grow into the soil. Even when you do that, trees have a taproot that grows straight down. It grows very, very deep. And eventually it becomes so wide it almost looks like an extension of the trunk. It's how it supports itself and it's able to stand so tall and so wide. When you put that taproot down in a container, eventually it hits and it turns and goes sideways. When you plant it, it will send a second root system down. But that second root system that creates the new taproot only has the ability to have about half the pressure of the initial root. I think it's like 30 bars versus 15 bars of pressure. I'm not sure if those numbers are right, but it's something like that. It's relatively half when they kind of break off and go to a secondary taproot. So if you plant, you're going to get... The best root structure from seed, you're going to get the best root structure, uh, you're going to get the best taproot penetration. And you're also not going to end up with a tree that's planted too deep. You know, most trees in America are planted too deep. Uh, they start them in a little pot, they put them in a bigger pot, they put them in a bigger pot, and every time they do that, uh, they throw more dirt on top and, and they go a little bit higher on the trunk, and then you get it and you put it in the ground and you think deeper is better and you plant it so that you cover the root ball like the instructions say. And then guess what? The tree's maybe five or six inches deeper in the ground than it should be and you thought maybe you only put it in two inches deeper. You need to look to where the trunk flares when you plant a container tree and make sure that flares above the ground. Uh, as far as you know, covering the root ball or whatever, the root ball's down there. right? Maybe you do some mulching to protect those roots that are a little bit closer to the surface. But basically you're better off letting those die off. Uh, this is a lot of times why trees die. The circling girdling root syndrome, eventually those circling roots, the trunk grows out to where the roots circle, and the tree strangles itself, uh, or it just is in stress and it doesn't grow well. So growing from seeds is a great idea. Now there's a product I talked about called Growasis that's specifically designed to start trees from seed. Uh, you might want to check into that. I'll put a link in today's show notes for you. Again, it's called Growasis, and it's designed to help get trees started. It's designed to reforest the deserts is what it's designed to do, but it would certainly work anywhere else. And with that, I'm going to wrap up today. If my voice sounded a little bit you know, sketchy or whatever today, or I sound a little bit like, congested. It's because I've got some kind of allergy going on. I think the mold in the area has blown up to some ridiculous level, and that's what it is. Um, so local honey won't help me because it's mold. So sorry about that. Hopefully by next week when uh, I come back to you, uh, I'll be sounding better. 
Monday we'll be doing that show uh, that we always do on Mondays. Your calls and stuff. I mean, your, your emails to Jack at the Survival Podcast dot com. Um, I'm going to do my best to get that show done tomorrow because we've got some stuff going on here in the house today uh, that's going to make that impossible related to the move and then get that out for you on Monday. And uh, Tuesday, I'll do that rebroadcast. Wednesday next week, I'm probably taking a day off just because I'm going to be unloading a trailer and, and returning a trailer to U-Haul and things like that. And then Thursday, we'll be back and we'll, we'll go back into that money-saving show. Uh, if you want to still uh, contribute content for that, it's Friday. I'll take content through today for that series. Uh, just put TSP Money Saver in the subject line. And remember, if you've been holding out on the MSB and you've been waiting for a discount, here it is today, available through Sunday evening, 20% off any membership. Uh, just use the discount code 20. That's the word, not the number. T-W-E-N-T-Y. 20% off any membership's first year. With that, I am going to wrap up today. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Nobody up there cares, they're living for